Hello and welcome back to another episode of Come Over for Dinner. I'm so excited you're joining me today. Today I have a very special guest all the way from Chicago. She is married with three young children, a boy and two girls. The oldest is in second grade. I am so excited to have her today. She is going to tell us all about her life, but especially about her time in Switzerland, where she and her husband were on staff at Labrie. So welcome, Valerie. Thank you. So exciting to be here. This is really a privilege. Thank Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Tell us a little bit about your life in Chicago and before that in Switzerland. Yeah. So, well, I did grow up in Chicago. My mom teaches at a college here. She's been there for like 50 years. She's been teaching forever. And it's a Christian school. And so part of my education, I went there. And one of the things that I had to do when I was a Christian education major was find a ministry to do research at when I was in college. And so I decided to, the short version of the story is I decided to go to Libri because I had friends who went to Libri. Now, for those who don't know, Libri is a French term that means the shelter. That's what it means. And it's a ministry that was started in the 50s by Francis and Edith Schaefer. And Francis and Edith Schaefer, if you're not familiar with them, Francis Schaefer was particularly well-known kind of in the 80s and 90s, which is maybe the peak of or 70s, 80s, 90s, peak of his heyday as a kind of Christian worldview philosopher. But he and his wife began this ministry in post-World War II Europe way back in the 50s. They went there originally to run Christian camps, like Bible camps for post-war children in Europe, ran into several different issues because of their witnessing, and eventually moved to a particular canton that was easier for them to just live their life the way they needed to live it and, and do the things that God was calling them to do. And their daughter, their oldest daughter, had gone to college there in Lausanne in Switzerland and started bringing friends back to school or back to her, ho- her home, her family's home, to discuss issues regarding Christianity with her father. When the, when the Schaefer's children were starting to hit college, their eldest daughter would bring her friends from, from school who had questions about God. Kind of post-World War II Europe, a lot of people were asking sort of existential questions, and maybe a lot of them were coming I mean, you know, Switzerland is a Protestant country, a big history, of course, from the Protestant Reformation, but a lot of them were were just dealing with fallout from the war and questions about God. And Schaefer would really engage with them, and more and more people started coming, and his ministry just, God really blessed it in the, kind of during the Jesus People Movement, floods of people started coming to their home, and it became a more formalized kind of a ministry. They lived in a really big house. And, and then they acquired various properties near, near their own house and started hosting, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 people at a time. So that's so that incredible. Was, that was sort of, yeah, that was sort of the 60s. Like you think about, like, if you ever saw that Jesus Revolution movie there, you know, there's just this time when the spirit is sort of moving among people and they're just coming. It's very informal. There's, there, no, nothing is structured. Nothing is, nothing is, it's very disorganized. You know, so they had to kind of get their heads around what what God was up to and how to how to responsibly handle uh, all these opportunities, you know. Um, but the Lord has blessed this ministry, and then um, now the the questions that people come with are very similar to what they came with then. I would say like fifty percent apologetics types of questions, where things people are asking about the nature of the Bible or the nature of the goodness of God, um, arguments for God's existence. 
And then also people have emotional questions, you know, or they maybe have hit some kind of crisis in their life and they need a little bit of help walking through that crisis or they, they're dealing with some stuff from their church or from their family. And so Liberty kind of ministers to that. And what what has turned into is that largely the population that comes are people who are college student age or post-college student age or in a gap year. So most of the people are between 18 and 25 who are at Liberty. Uh, they still are working with uh, groups of 30 to 40 at a time, uh, much more manageable. What I found when I was there as a student and then when we returned to join the staff was that hospitality is like the the secret sauce of Liberty and, and how... And that, that really came from Edith, from the mother and the family, that her heart and her, she had a really robust ministry background too, and a really interesting story herself, interesting perspective on things. And so I really learned a lot from her and from her legacy in, in hosting people and what evangelism and hospitality kind of looks like. That is inc- an incredible story. And it's so true that the way that you invite people in first is through hospitality. It's usually the most Mm -hmm. effective way to get to know someone and to help them to understand that you care about them as a person, not just in telling them about Jesus or something, you know, right, right. People, people do want to know that you care about them and who they are as you're inviting them into your home. So hospitality is definitely the the key, the secret sauce, as you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Schaefer called love the final apologetic. So he sort of said, like, what are we doing? If you don't actually care about these people, don't waste their time or yours. You can have a list of arguments for whatever it is you're trying to persuade them about. That's people are very, you, you need to start there. Yeah, people feel very cared for when you invite them into a home that's beautiful, that has hot food on the table. and. Mm-hmm smiling people to welcome them in and and make them Mm -hmm. feel at home for sure. Right. So you and your husband were there working. I guess this is before children and you were working. How how does the place run now? Is there someone who owns it, so to speak, because the Shapers are no longer there? Well, there's descendants. So, yeah. So that's a good question. So the property is owned from what I understand, by the Libri Foundation, so they did they did develop a structure, a ministry, you know, a ministry foundation, a kind of a, they formalize things eventually. But the way that it works is that there's sort of three tiers of participants in the community. There are the workers; they call them workers, and then there are helpers, and those are sort of like junior staff members. They're people who have been students, and then there are students. So students are are the folks that are coming because they have questions that they want to research while they're there at Libri. Uh, There's a large library of recordings of Schaefer's teachings, all the other staff workers teaching since him, and then also just tons of resources from philosophy to theology to art to, you know, questions regarding science and Christianity. And then students spend half their day researching their questions and half the day assisting with the household upkeep of the campus. So it's a whole campus now. It's on the side of this mountain in this little dairy village in Switzerland. It's very remote in a certain way, but in another way, kind of accessible through public transportation. But they're very old, like buildings from the 1700s. They all require a lot of upkeep and care. And so the students spend half their day in sort of that kind of work and then half their day studying. And then they meet once a week with a worker who is sort of like a lecturer or a tutor 
that helps them sort of organize their thoughts and points them in the right direction for different resources and engages with them about their questions. And then at lunch every day, they come together for what they call formal lunches, where they have like a Socratic dialogue about a particular issue. And they have breakfast together and dinner together. So for lunch, they break into usually two or three small groups of 16 to 14 to 16 students. But breakfast and dinner uh, is everybody together. And then some dinners there are everybody plus the neighbors. And students usually come and they stay for like six to eight to 12 weeks. It, kind of, it just sort of depends. People can come and stay a couple of nights. But if they really want to dig into those questions, they'll stay for longer and and really plug in. And it's a sort of dormitory kind of a situation where men and women are, you know, are roomed together and they kind of live life together. There's a couple of accommodations for married couples and families, but generally they're single people. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. Do people go a lot of times in the summertime? Or do they just yeah. go all year long? Is it all year long about the same amount of people? Or is there just a lot more people who go, say, for a summer trip? Yeah, I think that there probably are higher numbers in the summer. They have a spring or a win- they call it winter term, summer term, and fall term. And the, again, those terms, there's, so they try to organize their dates now according to the Schengen requirements for visa stays in Europe because there's there's rules about like Americans right now. Most of their, maybe not most, 50% of who comes are Americans, and the rest are from all over the world. And so Americans, though, in Switzerland, they're not supposed to stay longer than 90 days consecutively. And so they try to organize terms to accommodate some of those requirements that come from the European Union recently. But yeah, anyway, so they'll come in batches. And then, you know, like different Christian universities might send groups of students like in during their January terms or J terms, if they have like a trimester sort of a setup. So that's, I would say the summer is busiest with a lot of turnover because there are a lot of college kids that like to backpack through Europe in the summer. Mm -hmm. And so those numbers can get really high, but they don't have as much longevity. Like the students aren't staying for as long. They'll stay for shorter bits. So there's a higher turnover for the workers. People are more digging in, you know, for a semester or something in the in that fall and winter term. So they come for various amounts of time. But that you'll if you ever go to the swissschool3.org website, you'll see that there's different terms or different date structures, and then they'll kind of say, you know, you can come for as little or as long as you want. You can just come for a day, and, and you'll be barely dipping your toe in. You're not going to have wow. a mind blown probably right. in a day, <laughs> except that it's very beautiful. I it's can imagine really beautiful, and so sometimes people just want to see it. Oh, I know. Switzerland was always at the top of my list of places to see when I was young. And I did go as a teenager to Switzerland and Germany for a mission trip, mostly Germany, Eastern Germany. After the Berlin Wall had fallen, there was a youth camp over in Eastern Germany that I was with teen missions for a summer. And it was so much fun. But we did what was called a debrief in Switzerland a week after the whole trip was over. And it was as incredible as I imagined it would be picturesque. And I yeah. have always wanted to go back. It is just breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the jobs you have there or had there, I can imagine, has to do with food. All these people uh-huh. coming besides that right. picking the grounds and the property, you definitely uh-huh. have jobs in the kitchen. Right. You mentioned that you, for dinner, if you have 40 to 50 people, 
you mm-hmm. have a budget you have to stick to. And mm-hmm. it's sometimes you are trying to get it to $2 per person, which seems yeah. unimaginable. Yeah. So tell me about some of the creativity it took to menu plan on that sort of budget. Yeah. So a little bit of context for that is that Edith Schaefer, the mother who was a huge, she's like the heart of Lurie. I would say that Frances Schaefer is like the brain, Edith's like the heart, (laughs) if you want to put it that way. She grew up as a missionary with China Inland Mission, which is started, I think, by Hudson Taylor. And they had this philosophy of ministry that you don't support race. Instead, you pray for the Lord to provide your resources. So, you know, some ministries will go through these seasons of fundraising. It's actually written into Libri's bylaws that they don't do that. They're not even allowed to. What they do is they have a really dedicated time of prayer every Monday. They come together for prayer. And then usually once a term, they have days of prayer and fasting for the Lord to provide for the work, which he has done for over 50 years. So I really learned a lot about God's provision through that ministry. Um, but that was their particular philosophy. But what comes with that is just uh, a real focus on resourcefulness and and trying to use your resources really responsibly. And because so many students are quite limited in what they're able to pay, because you know we have a they had a fee rate, they had a rate, and then some people just weren't able to meet it. But we weren't nobody was just shown the door, you know, and so. They would say, could we try to keep our budget to two Swiss francs a head? Well, two Swiss francs, when I was at Libri, was pretty equivalent to two American dollars, which felt nigh impossible. Food is expensive, right? But there were two grocery stores in Switzerland that some some places in the United States have them here, and that was Aldi and Lidl, which um, they weren't there when I was there originally as a student, but they were there when we came back on staff. And Aldi and Lidl were our lifesavers for budget budget buys. But also, we had to find really creative ways to incorporate protein because you can make a lot of mac and cheese on $2 a head. You can make a lot of cabbage soup on $2 a head. But you also need to help people, you know, feel full. And and especially a lot of, you know, when you're hill climbing, like you're at this, you're living on a 45 degree angle, it feels like there in the mountains. And so you're getting a lot of exercise just by being around, by walking from one house to another, you know, it's, it's, it's feels kind of extreme. And and so you just need to find ways to, to meet their requirements. And so something that I would do is you realize like buying the whole chicken is cheaper than buying chicken breast, for instance, mm. something. And so one of the recipes that I, that I was going to bring up, it required boiling a chicken. The other thing was that you'd maybe do a vegetarian meal for one or two meals a day and then try to have, you know, a more a meat protein in the other meal. And so there are different ways that we created that, but you were never giving anybody, unless a student wanted to spring for burgers for the whole community, which some, usually that would happen once or twice a semester. Somebody's just like, I'm just dying for burgers, or I just really want to have Thanksgiving dinner. Can I please pay for the turkeys? You know, that kind of thing. But normally you wouldn't have like a meat protein main. It would be like in a soup or it would be in a casserole or a pizza mm. or something that would stretch it. So that's kind of how we met those requirements. We also had a very structured sort of grocery shopping situation where we had these Excel spreadsheets. We had our staples, and then every worker who was responsible for meals would would calculate. You know, their the staples didn't necessarily always have to be a part of that two person ahead. Does that make sense? Budget, and so you had your regular staples that we were always buying and replenishing. 
And then for your formal meals or for your dinners, you would have the two Swiss francs ahead that you would you would realize that there were certain things that you could always do and you would make it work. But mm-hmm. uh, what I quickly realized is we weren't serving fruit salad. We weren't serving, you know, like mm-hmm. we weren't going to serve chicken breast everybody because right. that was just going to be too much. So, right. Yeah. That re- that still reminds me of the teen missions trip because the food was very carefully oh, really? planned out because they were feeding a large group of teenagers we were responsible for, or they, whoever the coordinators were, were responsible for feeding the entire group. And it was uh-huh. very good food, but it was, yes, you weren't getting an entire steak or, you know, whatever. It was, You're right. the, the protein was cut into smaller pieces and put in, say, yeah. you know, chicken and rice or, you know, with yeah. uh, some carbs to go with it or in a yeah. soup. I celebrated my 16th birthday in Germany and I was asked, you know, what do you want for your birthday meal? And I hadn't had pizza. It's like pizza. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and probably chocolate cake or something. And I just said it thinking, oh, you know, we have set meals and it's all planned out and I'm not going to get pizza. I showed up to dinner that night and they had done pizza. Somehow Aww. they had come up, which, you know, pizza, honestly, is a bread dough is not expensive, but right. somehow they had come up with the cheese and I don't remember the toppings now. My favorite is pepperoni. So I'm not sure if they yeah. came with pepperoni or if it was sausage or hamburger or what it was, but it right. was the most delicious pizza I've ever tasted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You start to learn to appreciate that more. We yes. had to do pizza at La Brie too, but yeah. You know, you spread your pepperonis out so that everybody could get a couple of pepperonis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. It was very fun. And, you know, we never did feel like we were lacking in any way. It was always um, just delicious food and great fellowship. And and right. you all just, yeah, just enjoyed the the meals together. So that was a very fun time. And it sounds like Labrie is an exciting time as well for the people that go. Edith Schaefer and her husband wrote lots of different books. And as you mentioned, they have different materials that you can read or listen to. Uh, I have a couple of books by Edith Schaefer from years ago. It has been a long time since I've read Mm -hmm. them. One is Liberty, and it talks Mm -hmm. about what you talked about, the history of how the Liberty started in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And another one is called The Hidden Art of Homemaking Ideas for Creating Beauty in Everyday Life, where she encourages. I have mine too. (laughs) We have matching copies. That's right. She encourages ladies in the art of homemaking and just talks about how to make a home beautiful and how important it is Mm -hmm. and what it does to bless your family and others who come Mm -hmm. in. And she just mentions the different arts. I won't read all of them, but, you know, anything from music to interior decoration to gardening, flower arrangements food mm-hmm. and it goes on. And one of the things she mentions in food that I really appreciated was she says, a man does not have to be the greatest chef in the world in order to enjoy the artistic fulfillment of cooking and serving a meal. A woman does not have to have a certificate from the Cordon Bleu or a home mm-hmm. economics degree in order to develop both skill and creativity in planning menus and serving well-cooked meals. For both male and female cooks, the variety within any one meal should be thought of. Eye appeal as well as taste appeal should be remembered. For those cooking for a hundred people, the beauty of each plate should be considered just as much as it should be for the person cooking for two. A plate Mm -hmm. can be thought of at times as a kind of still life, not a lasting one, of course, but lasting in memory. And she talks about just how you can make something special even from something simple. 
And that's mm-hmm. a fun reminder, even as we cook for our families, you know, that it's, yeah. we can set a beautiful table. Not that it has to be every single night, like you're pulling out all the stops, but she talks mm-hmm. about even a simple candle or some candles and a, a lone flower can really mm-hmm. um, make it appear special and beautiful and just set a tone of, I care for you. Mm-hmm. Also, she continues a, a little bit later, a page or two later, she talks about what that does for a person's heart and soul. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think that is such an important part of being a homemaker, a mom who wants to serve her family. I mean, obviously, we think of when we have guests coming over, how we want to make it special and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But every day we have that opportunity to bless our families through food mm-hmm. and through our hospitality. She says, well, and now in the winter time, this is going to come out mm-hmm. in the, the gray of winter. She says, when mm-hmm. the day is gray and the news is disappointing, you want to make the meal interesting and appealing. She says, children feel the difference in the home that takes this attitude. Father comes home tired and discouraged after some sort of failure or disappointment to find not food he dislikes or a burned soup and sloppy serving, but a beautifully set table with his favorite food served artistically and a hot drink mm-hmm. or tiny cookies or nuts served afterwards with the air of a special occasion. Or mm-hmm. a roommate receives a letter which is the dreaded reality of a fear long worried about, but comes back to the flat to find a meal prepared in anticipation in the comfort of hot broth and Melba toast, mm-hmm. <laughs> omelet and muffins and chocolate scalding hot topped off by a marshmallow or whipped cream. Food cannot take care of spiritual, psychological, and emotional problems, but the feeling of being loved and cared for, the actual comfort of the beauty and flavor of food, The increase of blood sugar and physical well-being help one to go on during the next hours better equipped to meet the problems. Yeah. And I just really had her head around that. Yeah. I love that Uh, part because it's so true. We we recognize food is not going to change the problem. You know, if someone is mm -hmm. having a hard day or is sick or tired or whatever the problem is, it does not erase the fact that that problem is still there but it can so uplift a person and bless them because of the love behind it. But also God just created us as earthly creatures. We have yep. earthly needs and yep. those needs include being nourished and yep. having food to give us energy and how much more special if somebody's down to make their favorite whatever or bring them a mm-hmm. hot drink or mm-hmm. whatever it is yeah, that I- bless bless that person the most. I like what you were saying about, and what she says about doing this for your own families, right? Because a lot of us, you know, we uh, like in your, in your podcast, there's a lot of focus there on coming over for dinner. So you're thinking about folks, maybe you don't know quite as well. There's maybe a sense of anticipation or a desire to kind of elevate the standards of the, of the presentation, but she really encourages us to think about doing that for our own families, our own people. And so one thing I think is that sometimes we need to raise the standards in our own homes and drop the standards for when we're inviting people over, because we're so likely, we're we're more likely to be concerned about what outsiders think of us and kind of disregard how, how our own folks feel here in our, in our homes. But yeah, I think she's really challenged me to think about like, how can I make my home cozy for my kids? Mm-hmm. Right. Like not, not just thinking about somebody else walking in the door, but what do we need to make it feel lovely for us? Mm-hmm. And then out of that overflow, we'll be prepared to joyfully welcome new, you know, newcomers that we don't know as well. And sometimes you feel like I can't invite somebody over because I'm not prepared. My house is a mess. 
but what they really need is is they need somebody to talk to or they or they just need to feel welcomed and you need to drop your standards a little bit and maybe break up some paper plates mm-hmm. for the strangers, but actually serve your family on some real China every now and then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because, because, you know, I think children can kind of, they, they just are so keen and they can start to resent it if they feel like the only time our house is peaceful and calm and looks nice is when other people are here. But for right. us, the standards are just, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, and so we never want people to get those priorities mixed up, right? And so, Well, and yeah, then I you do have people sure. coming in and your children are helping and there's anticipation and they're cleaning and all of that. That does teach them a servant's attitude and, and blessing other people. But if they never feel right. that in return themselves, like mom does right. this for me too. Yeah. Like you say, we are getting it backwards. The most important right. thing is not the memories and the the care that you show for people coming in. It should yeah. be an overflow. I think you mentioned that as well of mm-hmm. what's already happening. For mm-hmm. me, the most important thing when my kids were growing up and now that they're older, it's just so exciting to see, well, to hear their stories of the things they remember. And mm-hmm. as a mom, you don't even realize how important it was at the time or that they're holding mm-hmm. on to that memory. Like we don't know which memories they're going to have. Right. We they totally the forget some big giant birthday party that you spent all yeah. this time on. Right. <laughs> and they remember that one time that they were sick and on the couch and you brought them a tray and it had hot tea yeah. and biscuits and scones. And right. they remember the time that, I don't know, that just was you making them a priority, you giving hospitality to them in a moment that they really needed. And it was very important Mm -hmm. to them. So Mm -hmm. yeah, those are fun, fun things as they grow up to hear. You don't really know it now when you're raising kids, but later on, you'll you'll hear (laughs) what it is that they held on to. Right. You always did this. I remember doing that twice. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I don't remember that at all. (laughs) I have a son. We tried to do, I don't know if I mentioned this on here or not before, but we tried to set aside, we had five children and we tried to occasionally do it. Everybody goes to bed. All the kids are in bed, but one gets to stay up when we would rotate who gets to stay up with mom and dad a little bit later. And then they go to bed after everybody else has gone to bed. And so my second son, he still remembers it was his turn and he got to come crawl in our bed and eat ice cream. <laughs> that is big. And wow, we probably watched a cartoon or who even knows? I don't know if we talked, watched a cartoon, what we did, but he remembers the Ben and Jerry's ice cream, the Cherry yeah. Garcia. I loved Cherry Garcia and it is his favorite as well. But well, it's he, delicious. yeah, it's yeah. delicious. It's absolutely <laughs> delicious. <laughs> He still remembers it and talks about it to this day. And I'm sure I was just so tired and like, oh, it's his turn. We really need to do it, not put it off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Did he get any ice cream on the sheets? No, no. There you go. He was old awesome. enough. He didn't. We had a great time. And then we Good. also did pajama parties where oh, fun. they're all in their pajamas heading to bed. And it's like, okay, right out to the trampoline. We had a trampoline that uh-huh. had a net around it. And so there'd uh-huh. be blankets out there and we'd all lay and look at the stars and oh, always awesome. have food. But a lot of times I tried to have some fun little snack, you know, popcorn or, and mm-hmm. then, but as my daughter, I have one daughter, she was old enough to make cookies. And so if she knew about one coming up, she would try to make snickerdoodles or some special, or maybe she would even try to plan it. She would be like, 
So mom, if I make snickerdoodles, can we have a pajama party? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. We have family room camp out where every now and then, I mean, we haven't done this part in a while. Like we'll actually set up our tent, our, our family rooms big enough to do this, like set up a tent in the family room because where we live, it's not quite feasible to do it outside. We were That's magical. Yeah. And we get out our sleeping bags and we eat popcorn and watch, maybe watch a movie. So that's quite not exactly like camping, but man, it just really scratches an itch for them and they just love it. So, and then, you know, usually they all go up to their own beds eventually. Not always. Some of them do. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's something um, they'll remember forever. They'll treasure it. They'll treasure those times that it does take a little bit of extra effort, a little bit of extra cleanup at the end of it all, but it is so worth it to. Right. To extend yourself and show that kind of hospitality to your kids. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, speaking of hospitality, you are a pastor's wife. You do have three mm-hmm. young children and you are hospitable yourself as far as not just to your family, but to having other people in. Just like with Liberty, you are working mm-hmm. on budgeting while feeding large groups. So tell mm-hmm. me about one of the favorite things that you would serve if you were having a group into your home. Sure. So I, you know, I kind of mentioned that sometimes we need to drop the standards a little bit for folks coming into our home. And sometimes, especially sometimes people in ministry, we don't, we never mean to be intimidating, but people feel a little intimidated coming into a ministry house. Sometimes they just, they were like, this is the pastor. I've got to be in my best behavior. And there's sometimes a bit of a tension or I don't know, you want to help them relax. Sometimes, you know, unless they're they're already good friends of yours, you want to help people relax. So the menu that I chose is actually a lunch menu. I'm a little more often serving lunch to folks these days rather than dinner because my kids go to bed so early. And that lunch that I chose is from the Pioneer Woman's website. It's called Maligatani. And Maligatani soup is, I think it's like a, like a, British colonial thing. Like it's, it's sort of faux Indian curry soup, but it's, it's tasty. And I would serve it over rice with maybe some bread and a salad and then some kind of dessert. But what I would do, this is not a time saver, but it it can be done beforehand is uh, I would boil a whole chicken. So this is a recipe that I would serve at livery usually a couple times a term and found that it it was satisfying in part because you're boiling this whole chicken and you get to use the broth that the chicken is is boiling in and that really bulks up the soup when you're making it with its own and you keep you keep back some of that fat right so you're getting those calories and you're getting some of the protein and then the recipe that that the pioneer woman has on her website calls for half and half or cream and I suggest actually switch that out for a can of coconut milk. If you're if you're just doing a single recipe, two cans if you're doubling the recipe. And then do everything else the same and it's going to taste delicious. You can make it gluten-free by when you're making the little roux for the thickener, use gluten-free flour. Nobody can tell the difference. My husband's gluten-free and that's what we always do. And then the other fun thing about this recipe is it calls for a Granny Smith apple in the savory soup. And that's a little unusual and it makes the flavor like have a tang to it. That's kind of cool and nice. And then, yeah, you can double this recipe really easily. And then I make some rice on this side and then you you ladle it over rice and you have this really satisfying meal. So you might even find that you don't need to use all that chicken that, that comes from that boiled that boiled bird and you can save some of that chicken. And I've often been able to stretch that chicken real far, depending on how large it was, you know, when you boiled it at first. If so. you double the recipe, do you need two chickens or just one for a double recipe? 
So again, it kind of depends on the size of the bird. So in Switzerland, we were using Swiss chickens. They don't import a lot of meat into their country. And so it's all like local, local, local. And sometimes those birds are kind of small. And so you would need to use two. And we just happen to have those giant restaurant size soup pots where you could do two at once. At home here where I live, you can find a pretty substantial size chicken and you and you can double that recipe and still have chicken left over with one kind of fatty bird. So it just depends on how many pounds it is. Uh, you know, and there they were all in kilos, right? And so I'm, t- I'm having a hard time remembering like how many grams of chicken or how many. It was very loosey-goosey. <laughs> sure, you can just and, go buy what it looks like. And if you pull up a spoonful, is there chicken in there? Or is there no chicken in there? <laughs> yeah. You can kind exactly. of eyeball and it. And then you can bulk it up with whatever vegetables you have. I think it calls for celery and, and onions, but you can add soup, you can add peas, you can add green beans, you can throw in a lot of other veggies to bulk this up and make it a really substantial kind of a stew situation. So that sounds yeah, delicious and very filling yeah, and hearty for uh, winter time. Uh-huh. And it's, it's honestly, it's a humble recipe. Like if you, if you didn't use the coconut milk, if you used just chicken breast, it would be not quite as company worthy, but still totally worthy for a friend, you know, and, and totally achievable and approachable. But I do recommend boiling the chicken because it really makes it more substantial and, and caloric <laughs> because you, sometimes you need that. And then you can use that stock in all sorts of ways because it, it can make a lot of stock. Mm-hmm. So does the original recipe call for boiling a chicken or does she start with no, chicken breast? She just starts with chicken breast. She dices it up and she starts with chicken breast. And so that's my, again, we would never buy chicken breast up in Switzerland. I don't even know. Uh, yeah, they sold them and they'd be like $13, $14 or something for a pack of two skinny little ones. And wow. so it was literally half the price to buy the entire bird and you'd get white and dark meat that way. Mm-hmm. And, and you're able and, to make your own chicken stock because you have all yeah. the bones. Yes. Right. And so, and I can be a little, like, I can just dry chicken breast out so easily when I cook chicken breast. And so this, I feel is a little more foolproof for me, especially when you're cooking for a large group of people. I just am so phobic about either undercooking chicken or, or just cooking it beyond like palatability. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so I, yeah. So sometimes boiling it for me or doing it maybe in like an Instapot feels a lot more like Okay, I'm confident it's mm-hmm. cooked. I'm confident it's not going to taste weird. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're keeping yeah. the moisture in because you're not over, you're not double cooking it, <laughs> yeah. cooking it to death. Yeah, exactly. Let's take a quick break. Are you searching for hands on activities to help your kids explore the practical side of science? Look no further than your kitchen. Inquisicook blends food science and culinary arts into an engaging program that puts delicious food on the family table. Let Inquisicook do the teaching with lesson videos, reliable recipes, and assessment tools that put students on track for success. Their online platform is easy to navigate and optimized for mobile, so the learning experience can move from the classroom to the kitchen without a hitch. Inquisicook turns curious students into intuitive cooks, not just recipe followers. Say goodbye to the tyranny of the ingredients list and say hello to utilizing what's in season, what's on sale, or what's in the fridge. Visit Inquisicook.com to view sample lessons, then check out the recipe gallery to see just how crave-worthy science can be. 
So exactly. would you serve, you mentioned serving it over rice. It has vegetables mm-hmm. in it. So that it does seem like a very complete meal. Do you ever serve mm-hmm. bread on the side or a dessert? Yeah. Anything else with it to round it out? Yeah. So when I was in Switzerland, we would make bread constantly. That was a big part of the community there. And um, I don't make it as much at home because my husband is gluten-free and I have not gotten the confidence to figure out yeasted gluten-free bread yet. And so I'll buy the bread usually just because he can't enjoy my homemade bread with that because it's gluten-free because he's gluten-free and the bread is not. But we would make rolls usually to go with this, just like a real simple, you could do it in three hours sort of roll. It did take a double rise, but it would be done in three hours and it would make a lot. And then, yeah, with a green salad and dessert usually. And if you're on a tight budget, something like no-bake cookies, you know, made with just the cocoa and the, and the oats, oats are so cheap. Simple. Yeah, the children really like those and teen, you know, young young adults don't mind them. They'll still enjoy them, right? So that's what we would normally do. And then every now and then there's also something and I've heard other folks on your podcast mention it called like a wacky cake, which is this depression era recipe that was made without eggs. It was like oil and vinegar were the leaveners in the cake and you could do it even all in one and what, I don't have a recipe for it right in front of me, but it's Google, you can Google it, a wacky cake. And you make these wells and the cocoa and the flour and you, you add these different ingredients. And that would be pretty good, too. And very um, economical, sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's there's some of these kind of depression era recipes that are suitable for when things are on a tight budget. I do think there's definitely a place for event cooking where you're cooking steak and potatoes for folks. And we do that too, especially when there's somebody that we're really trying to honor or thank. But it's, it can really drop the intimidation level to bring folks into your home when you're serving soup, right? Mm-hmm. So that feels, it feels so approachable. Yes, it's, it's definitely <laughs> yeah. a comfort food. People never mind a good soup. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Especially when it's cold outside. With this recipe, is there a shortcut or time saver you use to make it ahead of time? Yeah. So we would not do that when we were in Switzerland. We would usually cook a whole meal within a three-hour time frame or a two-and-a-half-hour time frame, and that would be enough. But if you wanted to make it ahead of time, you can totally boil a chicken the day before. You can even put the chicken on to boil, bring it to a boil, put it down to simmer, Go run an errand or two, depending on how far away you live from your stores and stuff, and come back, and then it'll be ready to shred. Then put the chicken in a in a really good container and pour some of the broth over it, and then save the rest of that stock. You'll see the fat divide, you know, from the from the broth, and if you want to skim that off or leave a little bit, you can do that. Because you're putting the chicken back into a soup, you don't have to worry about it getting weirdly dry or freak out about the texture too much. Because sometimes chicken, when you save it, the texture changes a little bit. Sometimes it doesn't. But So you can do that. You can also do this with chicken breast in an Instapot. And that works too. It will not produce the same kind of stock though. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you would just be using boxed or, or some other kind of chicken broth. So it's not going to be quite as, well, it would be less fat, but it wouldn't be quite as substantial. So you would want to bulk it up with creamer or, and both recipes call for the coconut milk. So there's a couple of different things you could do. You could even, you know, I know they have canned chicken in the grocery store and you could try that. It it would, it does affect the flavor and everything, but you can, you can get there with it. Um, Most and soups I have are very the- forgiving where you can yeah. play around with it and still turn out okay. Although, yeah. like you're saying, there are better ways to to make it yeah. more flavorful ways that you could make right. it the other way and it'd be okay. 
and you know, I've made the whole soup the day before and then rewarmed it in the crock pot. And you want to make sure you're doing it. It depends on how much time you're doing. Like I just have served cold soup to folks before by doing that. And so you want to make sure that it gets hot enough. Like all soups, they get better after a day or something. And so sure. you can. And if you were short on time, you could just time. dump it in a pot for the stove instead of the crock pot and heat it up a little yeah. bit quicker. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So thankfully, it is something that you can really do ahead of time while you're cleaning, boil that chicken, that kind of thing. What is your best prep tip when you're having people over? Do you have any particular cooking inspiration, shopping tips, cleaning tips for us? Yeah, I mean, I have a couple. So shopping inspiration, if you're on a budget, there's a website that I've heard mentioned on your site or on your podcast before called budgetbites.com, B-Y-T-E-S. She does a really great job of calculating how much a recipe will cost per head. And that's a good way to kind of think about your prep. So sometimes what we'll do in my home is if we know that we want to have a special meal sometime this week, either with friends or just with our family, we'll have lower budget or vegetarian meals other days of that week. And so if you want to budget for something as special or more unique or something that takes unique ingredients, you can think about having a lentils, you know, at another point in your week or some kind of vegetarian curry or something like that. And then that will save some of your budget so that you can use it on a nicer protein and some other kind of meal. So we would do that kind of thing in Switzerland quite a bit, budget, 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 and then have a a more special or elevated meal another time in the week. So there's one way to kind of think about it. The other thing is that I think a lot of folks have mentioned cleaning ahead of time. And it's nice if you can keep your home in in a relatively ready to tidy position, you can do spontaneous hospitality a lot more calmly, right? So we have areas in our home that we try to keep a little bit tidier so that if somebody just needs to come over, all we have to do is tuck the toys away, put the paper clutter in the laundry room and feel like we're able to calmly welcome folks. Because people are not usually going all over your entire house. You don't have to have every single bedroom perfectly tidy. Another really great tip for the main areas is just teaching your children how to pick up after themselves as they're leaving the room. And so if it's continually a habit of just take Mm -hmm. your items with you, whether it's dropped shoes or a coat or a book, Mm -hmm. if it's left there time after time after time, then it's this huge cleanup. And, but if they get into the habit of care, you know, just before you leave the room, look around, grab your things, take them with you to your room or wherever they go. Mm -hmm. then you're right. The unexpected hospitality can happen a little more readily because those rooms, let's say the living room, dining room area is Mm -hmm. just not a total blitz. Yeah, totally. (laughs) 20 different items to pick up. Yeah. One prep tip that I have, hot tip, if you have dogs and I've got dogs and they are a little bit naughty (laughs) and they can make messes, right? (laughs) Especially in the winter time. So I have these two miniature dachshunds and they're really phobic of cold. And sometimes they're just naughty in the winter time and we have to clean up after them. So I have a steam vacuum cleaner. It's called a Hoover Smart Wash. And I use it a lot (laughs) to clean up after my dogs. And also I have a tiny baby that I like It's important for babies to be on the floor, right? And so I like my carpets to be really clean. And our home, we live in a parsonage or a manse. And so we don't have 
absolute control over the nature of our home, right? It's wonderful. And I am so grateful for it. But it, you know, we didn't build it. it I mean, we, we moved into it when, when my husband took this position, and we're so thankful for it, but it's, it's heavily carpeted. And so to keep those carpets clean and ready for babies, I like to steam clean my carpets. I used to like almost subscribe to Stanley Steamer is the company around here that does. And it was so expensive. It was so expensive to do that. So for the same price, like the price of one visit from Stanley Steamer, I bought a steam vacuum cleaner. And um, I'm on my second one now in uh, like six years because I use it so often. But it really uh, gets your carpets clean. It's worth every penny. So every time you vacuum, is it steam vacuuming or do you press this? another button that does oh, a good separate question. So <laughs> this might seem so extra to some people, but again, for me, it's really good in me peace of mind. I vacuum with my Dyson, my regular vacuum cleaner first. I go over, I actually vacuum kind of every day because we're tracking in so much salt and ice melt right now that I just feel like I need to, again, so the baby can crawl on the floor and I don't have mm-hmm. to worry about her putting ice melt in her mouth. And then, so you quickly go over your dry carpets with your vacuum cleaner. And because you're vacuuming semi-regularly, it's not catching that much stuff. And then you put water in the steam vac and, and it has a solution tank and the solution mixes with the water. And as you're pushing the machine forward, it's dispose, it's dispensing the soap in the water. And then as you pull it back, it's drawing it into the, I guess it's called the intake tank and it's drawing out all of the dirt and all of the, all of the yucky stuff out of your carpet. And you can see that water's black when you're pulling it out. And then you do, and then you pull the solution tank out. And you go over it one more time and it kind of rinses your carpet. You pull it back one more time and it gets all the soap out of your carpet. So sometimes when you hire a steam cleaning company, they will shampoo your carpets, but they're not necessarily rinsing your carpets. And so you'll, you'll get this kind of sticky residue on your carpet. They call them ghosts, like these ghost spots on the, on the carpet. You'll see from where your feet are, your footprints are, whatever, it'll track in some dirt and it might even look worse than it did before eventually. It smells better, but it looks worse. And mm-hmm. so uh, it's, it's kind of good to do a rinse if you can and get that rinse, that rinse, or if you had sprayed any particular stain remover on your rugs to get that stain remover out. And then it gets all of the yucky stuff out too. So I do that every time I need to. And because I do it often enough, I feel like confident with the kids playing on the carpet. It helps with allergies. It helps with just all sorts of dirt and stuff. Do you take shoes off at the door? You know, a lot of people in Chicago do. I don't. I just have uh, mats, you know, kind of water absorbent mats by my doors. And I encourage people, especially, I just feel like Usually, if you have somebody coming over and they don't know you very well, they've thought about what they're wearing, right? Like, it's so funny to have, like, a really nicely dressed couple walk into your home and then they have to take off their heels and shoes and, like, walk around in stockings. <laughs> and, and if you they're know, not prepared with extra slippers or something, their feet are yeah. going to be frozen. <laughs> right. And some folks, you know, I've been at homes that they have like a little tidy basket of just like neutral slippers that are gender neutral and people can slip them on. And that that's fine. I just don't want people to feel like they need to take their feet. I just I don't I don't. Well, like and if you clean your floors often and you have a really great way of steam cleaning them, that's a perfect yeah. second option. Right. Children, I do today. Hey, guys, let's take our shoes off. Let's put them on the water mat to take, you know, let those boots dry up and everything. Mm-hmm. And they'll be more comfortable that way. And that mm-hmm. way they're not tracking their boots around. But kids, grownups, I say, you know, do whatever you want. If you want to keep your shoes on, great. I've got a steam vacuum cleaner, so it doesn't matter. Right. right. Does the steam cleaner also work on hardwood floors? Like, could you do it, say, on your kitchen floor? Or no, it only works on carpet. 
So I have hardwood and a little bit of tile in my home. And no, you wouldn't use it. I think it would be too wet. So mm. I, my, my wood floors, I inherited them, you know, and they've got a little bit of water damage. And so we yeah, got they're not sealed. Too, I mean, they do yeah. have to be sealed, but even if they're sealed, it's, I'm sure that they're not supposed to have a lot of water. On yeah. Them. So I do know that there are machines. So there are machines that will do like a, a hot steam sort of clean for hardwoods and for, and for tile, but I, it's not this product. And I don't have one of those. My mother-in-law owns her own business and has one of those machines for her business because she has, it's a food business. She has to keep it clean. And she just takes that thing over to her house and, and her house gets so clean because of that. But yeah, it's like a different kind of apparatus. I don't know mm-hmm. what that is. So yeah. And I think with those, you have to be careful if your floor is glued down, that you're not oh, holding the yeah. steam too long in one place. I would just say research that too for wood yeah, floors because I've heard yeah. of that before. Like, Potentially, if you did it fast or if you did a lower level of steam versus a high, but if I don't know, I've heard someone talk about how if you, you, you know, hold up. it there, you might could mess up some kind of glue underneath. So, but I, I do yeah. love that option to, to be able to steam clean a floor because it really does kill all the germs and mm-hmm. releases if that, that heat will also pick up sticky things or, you mm-hmm. know, all the things that, you're washing with say lukewarm water it's going to be a lot tougher to <laughs> to get mm-hmm. the job done mhm right right so that's one of that's one of my tips is that if you have dogs and if they're naughty consider something like this it might make your life easier at i've had friends who've seen me use mine and they're like well, i'm going to get one of these <laughs> mm-hmm. just because of you know we have so much carpet in my dream house there would be no carpet i would just do dry vacuuming all the time when sweeping and that kind of thing and mopping but but yeah this is we're thankful for what we got and we just want to take good care of it and also mm-hmm. be ready for babies and kids and, and play on the floor because we spent so much time on the floor. So yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a great option. Mm-hmm. What is your best advice for showing warm hospitality to those coming into your home? How do you make yeah, them I, feel welcome? I think that it's important never to make assumptions about your guests. So when folks, especially if, I mean, people, you can invite your friends over and or folks that you feel a connection with and, and they'll feel more relaxed, but people never know where to put their coats. They don't know about their shoes. Should I take my shoes off? Can I keep them on? Like uh, we do a lot of orientation. So even about the food in Switzerland, we had so many people coming from all over the world. We realized that people don't know what you're serving. Like they don't know. So we would make biscuits and gravy for breakfast and the European folks would be like, what is this? Like biscuits, but they're savory. It's a savory dish. And like, you know, the gravy doesn't necessarily look totally appetizing. And right. like, first of all, you need to try it because it's amazing. Secondly, uh-huh. these are sa- it's a savory dish, right? Biscuits, we're not talking about cookies. Even Oh, that's uh, true. That I, I was, I wasn't even thinking of that, but it's true in England. They, biscuits are little, little tea cookies, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're kind of crunchy and thin. It's a different, it's just a different thing. What we're, they're like, it's closer to a scone, of course, what we're serving with biscuits and gravy, but it's not, I think probably they would not say that's a scone. You know, a buttermilk biscuit is not a scone to them. And, you know, I have like one kind of amusing story is for lunch, sometimes what we would serve along with our soup would be like a sandwich sort of situation where we'd pass around the rolls and then there'd be a little bit of sandwich meat and you can make yourself a little, a mini sandwich to, start, to eat with your soup. And then I would put a plate of cookies 
on the table. And while the students are having kind of this intense conversation, they'd be able to pass, you know, everything's family style. So they pass the food around while they're having these conversations that are pretty significant. So you try to give as much orientation as you can. And then they're discussing something like the problem of evil or something. And you want to be like, everybody stop. We need to discuss the food. So there was this lovely young man from South Korea who was at the table with us. And I'm watching him and he's making himself a sandwich and he, he's got his soup. He's got his bun and he takes the snickerdoodle cookie and he puts it right on that bun, puts the bun on top and just starts <laughs> sipping it into the soup and eating it. And I realized, of course, that looks like a weird little meat patty to him. Like he doesn't know. He has no yes. idea what he's about to eat. And, so, <laughs> and just keeping like a totally straight face while he's like eating this weird sandwich. <laughs> you know, and I was just thinking, like, what on earth? He must be so like miserable and not saying. Did you anything stop him and tell him? <laughs> I think you know. I don't know. I actually don't know. I remember how that story came out, but they were just the, like the kindest, most accommodating, like generous folks, and probably just thought like, wow, this is kind of delicious, but sort of a weird combination of flavors. <laughs> so um, Americans yeah. cook very strange. <laughs> <laughs> we we learned that never assume or we'd make spaghetti pie with garlic bread and that some folks, our Korean friends would never have had that in their lives. They just never and they just devoured it. They just adored it. So, you know, in some in some cuisines, they just don't eat a lot of dairy or they don't you know, there are just certain things that they've just never had. And so you just really need to explain it. And other advice, Edith would always she'd always have flowers on our table. And that was just another way, you know, we'd have these kitchen work crews and it was a really cool opportunity to teach young people how to cook, how to prepare meals and also how to make a warm home. And so we'd always have somebody going out and collecting a flower arrangement of wildflowers or flowers from the property. Other folks have said this, but I actually think music really sets people at ease. It's one of the cues that you are not resenting them coming to your house, right? Like, we are having a good time before you walked in the door. We're ready for you. Even if we're still like doing stuff, the music sets a real mood of joy and ease. And and it's just a signal to folks that you are in a, a, like what your mood is. You know what I mean? And so music, I think, is a really helpful way to kind of help people feel the tone of what's going on. Do you um, have any favorites I, or do you make a playlist ahead of time? Yeah, you know, you're always, especially with folks you don't know, you don't know what they like. But one thing that I've found is pretty consistently delightful is the Buena Vista Social Club channel on Pandora. So I think that's Bossa Nova music. It's from Cuba. And it's just lovely to have. It's really like fun and Latin sounding, but also celebratory. the name of it one more time. The so there's a there's a documentary. I haven't seen it. I don't know if I can recommend it, but it's called the Buena Vista Social Club. Buena Vista and Social Club. Okay. And they have a soundtrack. And I think that it's called Bossa Nova music. I might be wrong, Beth, but it's it's Latin music and it's it's just delightful. And they've got it's the the sound quality of that particular album is really nice and it 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 makes you feel kind of joyful but relaxed at the same time. And it's just it's not in English, so you're not distracted by lyrics and that kind of thing. So Yeah, it's anyway, just a fun uh, upbeat music. Yeah. Yeah, so I recommend that. And also, this is this might be an obvious to some folks, but make it clear whether or not children are invited or expected. So sometimes when you're inviting a family over, they can't tell if you're just inviting like the parents and they should get a sitter or if you're inviting the whole family. And 
I think it might be different where you guys are, but around here, people don't invite families of seven over very often. And so it's really special to say, bring everybody. Mm-hmm. We're going to all enjoy, you know, like we've got toys, your kids can play. But I think the reflex where we are is for people to say, oh, we're invited. We need to find a sitter. And and so to make it clear that, nope, we're, you know, uh, just make that clear. Just say mm-hmm. it, you know, one way or yeah. the other. Or or if you want to say like, hey, you want to go in on a babysitter together and we'll get together just for some grown-up conversation. You can make that clear too. But again, just don't make assumptions, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't leave them know. wondering what what yeah. to do and it's awkward. It feels awkward. over like, it. So should I get a sitter? Mm-hmm. So. Right. Are you inviting my children too? Are they welcome? <laughs> or do you not want right. my children? Yes, that's, uh-huh. that is awkward. What is your must-have kitchen item and where can we find it? So I've heard people mention on your podcast, kitchen shears. I found that somebody gave me kitchen shears when I got married and I was like, what is this? And I use them constantly. Another thing is, oh, my kitchen scale. I use my kitchen scale all the time. And part of that was at Labrie, we were, we were using a lot of recipes that called for grams and kilograms and that kind of thing. And, and found that I got really used to that. Also, if at any point in somebody's life they're watching their portion sizes, a kitchen scale can kind of help you get your head around what a normal portion size is. If, if, if like you're like me and during pregnancy, your portion sizes grow and grow and grow, there comes a time where you need to get your head around what a normal portion size is again. And that can kind of help you realize, oh, this is what two ounces of pasta is or whatever. So <laughs> I use mine almost every meal. It's it just helps me to to kind of make healthy choices and to realize like, wow, that's a lot of cheese or something like this. And, but for baking, you know, it's really great for baking. Mm -hmm. And because I do convert a lot of recipes from regular to gluten-free, sometimes if you're using any of these gluten-free flours, it'll help you sort of get your head around that because they don't always, I don't know, sometimes maybe I'm overly cautious about that, but it'll help you with the weight of those things. Well, for sure. Because when you're baking, if you do the too much of something, you make your product dense Mm -hmm. and the final result is not very tasty. So you Mm -hmm. even want your, you know, if you're doing gluten-free, you want it to be just as airy and light and delicious as if it weren't gluten-free. Right. And if you, having lived in Europe, if you're converting European recipes at all, they often use a kitchen scale. I mean, in your experience, did they have one at every meal pretty much? Like just every time you made bread or biscuits where people were weighing out the flour and the ingredients versus measuring it with measuring cups like we do in America? We did both. So we had brought over American measuring cups and American spoons. That was actually harder to find where they're like measuring spoons. We did do both and the students would do both. But when you would go to a worker's home, so we had like a student house that had more of an American style kitchen, but at the worker's home, we found that we were using kitchen scales quite a bit. And usually there were these digital ones that would just you know, they're real low profile and you just, you could put your bowl on there, you tear your bowl, T-A-R-E, tear it, so zeros out, you, you put your stuff in there, tear it out again, put the next thing in there, tear it out again, put the next thing in there. And you found that you could get really consistent results by doing that for different recipes. So that was really, really helpful for us. Another item that I use a lot is somebody bought me a little mini knife sharpener. It's called the Kitchen IQ Knife Sharpener. And you just set it on the corner of a table and draw your knife through it and it files down the knife. It's probably not a product you would want to use on a really high-end knife, but I got my knives 15 years ago from Target and it's, they're still fine because of this thing. <laughs> 
So if you don't have it in your budget to get a bunch, a really nice set of knives, this little knife sharpener, I think can really make your stuff sharp. You just really need to make sure you rinse your blades afterward and kind of make sure you get those metal filings down into your sink or in the trash can or something so that you don't get little metal filings in your Mm -hmm. food. But yeah. Is that Um, a product on Amazon? Yeah. uh So I think I sent you the link for it, but it's a really basic little device that it's just tiny. It's like this big and you set it on the corner and and it sharpens up your knife. Oh, that's Uh, only, yeah, only like a regular, you know, kind of butcher knife situation, but not like a serrated knife, of course, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Serrated knives are a bit different. mm -hmm. Well, that's a great tip. I do have a couple other knife sharpeners, but not one like this on the shop page. It came over for dinner.com. So if you want to see her recommended products, I will post them there and her recipes will be on the index as well as on a blog post under recipes. I think that, yeah, the title's recipes where your blog post is and then the index has it alphabetized by category. So any of these things that she's talking about, go to comeoverfordinner.com and you will find it. It's very fun, I think, to find recipe inspiration there. Because I release an episode every week, I don't always stay caught up on making all of the things people recommend. Mm -hmm. So it's really fun to go to the index and be like, oh, yeah, I did want to make that. (laughs) That sounded delicious when they talked about it. Right. I've been slowly doing that, pulling things off of the index when I feel like, oh, what do I make? I, there's nothing to cook. I don't even know what I like to make anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I get yeah, really excited about cooking too. again. Right. Especially because they're tried and true, like you were saying. And so that's mm-hmm. a helpful. Sort of, they're not totally experimental necessarily. Right. So, yeah. People are bringing their some of their favorites that they've tried and that their family mm-hmm. loves and other people like too, and that they have made numerous times. So I love that part about it. Some really great recommendations. Right. Right. I think, you know, one thing going with the, going with the soup that I mentioned earlier, like I said, when you're making that particular soup, you'll have extra meat, most usually left over, unless you're making the soup for a ton of people. You can do a lot of stuff with that extra meat. I uh, sometimes will put it in like a broccoli braid, which is pampered chef recipe, um, takes crescent roll dough, you can make enchiladas with it. There's just a lot of different things that you can make with extra shredded chicken in your life. So yeah, so if you're needing to stretch, again, stretch your protein across several different meals, there's a lot of different ideas for that. I, If you get a big enough bird, you can even get like three meals out of it, depending on the size of your family. Yeah. So well, and your budget bites recipe site sounds amazing as well, just to get yeah. inspiration and learn that a bit more if you don't mm-hmm. know how to budget well, if you're kind of overwhelmed by the prospect of feeding people for cheap. <laughs> Especially at the yeah. prices right now in the grocery stores. It's yeah. they're terrible. Do you all have Aldi where you are? Unfortunately, no. My sister no. in okay. Arkansas does, okay. but we do not. And I wish we did so much. There's a Trader Joe's about an hour and a half away in Spokane, Washington. Oh my goodness. But no Aldi. That's so. interesting because Aldi, I think it's like 3 to 5% cheaper even than Walmart. And so if you're able to get, if you are in an area where you have Aldi, mm-hmm. it's, it's got real affordable prices. Yes. Oh, my sister real. shops there all the time. She loves yeah. it. And I've gone when yeah. I visit and I just, I love it. But yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you won't be overwhelmed by options, but you <clears> will really appreciate the prices. <clears> and, <throat> and so that... To have it as a, for some of your most common things, it really can, it really yes. can make a big difference. St- she stocks so, her pantry with stuff. Like she'll go yeah. and just get a bunch of canned goods or whatever. And she just has it in stocks. Yeah. So. Right. Right. Yeah. 
Do you have a funny story for us from all your years of hospitality or from Liberty besides the snickerdoodle cookie, cookie. (laughs) which is a pretty great story? Yeah. You know, one thing that I've learned is that I think that there are a lot of reformed Presbyterian folks in South Korea because we would have a lot of people from that particular country come and visit us there. And I think if you're a conservative Christian in South Korea, there might be a higher likelihood that you're attending a Presbyterian church. I might be totally wrong about this. Somebody from Korea could actually correct me. But we did find that at least at Libri, there were a lot of folks coming from those communities um, when we were there. So one day I was, one of our responsibilities was that we would look after the community on Thursdays, which was the students' day off. The students would go and travel, they'd go sightseeing, maybe they'd take a day trip somewhere, do an excursion on Thursdays. And my family would stay back and we were just responsible for keeping an eye on the house. And preparing dinner, which Thursday night was leftover night at Libri. So you take all of the leftovers from all of the meals and you set them out in the lounge area. And it was a much more informal setup for Thursday nights. But because it was a day off, it was also like we kind of took it a little easier on on Thursdays up until dinner time because most of the time folks weren't around. And one morning or one afternoon, I was taking my dog out for a walk uh, there uh, around the property, like out by our garbage cans, kind of behind our building. And I feel this tap on my shoulder and I look, I turn around and there's a woman, a really well-dressed woman waving at me, like with a big smile on my face and behind her are something like 50 Korean tourists. And a big tour bus parked in our driveway. (laughs) And I was wearing like the schlubbiest t-shirt, the schlubbiest sweatpants, no makeup, hair in a ponytail with my dog, and then holding my baby on my hip and totally unprepared to meet the day of these. And these folks had come and they were doing a reformation tour. So Labrie is really close to Geneva. If you ever want to visit like all the sites of Calvin's Geneva, it's amazing. You should totally do it. They had been down there in Geneva, I think probably the day before visiting the Reformation Museum, visiting all the monuments, Calvin's Geneva. It's amazing. Then they hopped on the bus and they came up, you know, we're just like maybe two hours public transportation, probably less than that if you're taking a bus from Geneva. And they just dropped in because in the Libri books, people did that all the time. People just dropped in. And Edith was constantly preparing to meet that challenge. She, I think she wore like heels most of the time. Like she just looked lovely. She had it together. She had this idea, and I really appreciate this, that you know, her, her homemaking was the job and she kind of met it every day, like a professional, you know, like she was, she'd get up, she'd get ready in the morning and she'd be ready for her day. And she had her head around her, her life as I'm going to work at it. Like it's my job, whether I'm homemaking and that's it, or whether I'm welcoming folks. And so it was a really humbling and not very shining moment for me to show hospitality um, in a moment that I was like utterly unprepared, like wearing flip-flops, sweatpants, and and a schlubby t-shirt, and wanting to show this community of folks who came to visit, you know, all the amazing things about our campus, delivery, and the ministry. And I think what I honestly did was I found somebody who looked more presentable, and I passed them off. (laughs) And some other staff person, I was like, can you do me a solid and give it to her right now? Because I am just not prepared. And I've got the dog, I've got the baby, I need to kind of get my head around this. And I think I 
I later pitched in with serving tea because she would always, you know, Edith would always be ready at a moment's notice to serve tea to 50 people. I mean, it felt like that for the legends. And we could kind of get that together for them. And they were able to explore the grounds and everything. And it it worked out. But it was humbling for me to be a little more prepared for some spontaneous hospitality Mm -hmm. for the future. So (laughs) That's a great tip to just not that you can't ever be in sweatpants, but to just when you wake up, especially if you are a stay at home mom at home all day long with the kids, you probably feel a little bit more prepared to meet the day when you get yourself ready for the day in the morning, not the whole entire day goes by and you're still basically in pajamas. Your hair hasn't been brushed, you know, who knows if much else has happened. You feel just ready to meet the challenges of the day. And like you said, very prepared if someone just knocks on the door. Right. And I mean, it's not a huge part of our neighborhood culture to, to just knock on the door. But if you want to make hospitality part of your life, kind of thinking about those things ahead of time, like if you have control over the factors over the flow and size of your home, if you have control over the factories, even over your vehicles, like, could you make it a space in your life for a pickup so that if somebody needs help with a move, you know, that kind of thing, hospitality in terms of just living a generous life is sort of a biblical call for all Christians, right? And so making sure that you kind of have your head around what does hospitality look like? And usually, you know, in our culture, there's some kind of heads up that somebody's coming over and sure. you have enough Most of the time people don't just drop in, which is no a little bit of a blessing. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And one thing I notice is once your day starts, once my day starts, I don't have time to go back and get ready for the day. Right. I really do have to get ready in the morning because the day just seems to fly at mock speed once I get started. Yeah, it does. It's a good good tip. Just just throw on some decent clothes, whether or not you think a group of tourists is going to show up at your house. Uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) In a huge bus. And I think maybe one of them spoke English. And so we had to like do some translation work. Oh, dear. They were probably just so excited to be there. They didn't even notice. They probably were just thrilled to finally be at Liberty and its beautiful surroundings. And they were taking it all in. And who cares what you look like? So you did have a baby over there. I was thinking you went with your husband before children. Yeah, this is, I met my husband there. A lot of people meet their spouses at Liberty, ladies, if you ever, if if that's (laughs) something that you're thinking about. And we met there when I was a student. So, or I was on a helper. We met there when I was a helper back in 2006. We got married in, or no, in 2007. We eventually got married in 2009. And then we returned to staff in 2016. So our son was one at that time. And so we had been back and forth a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was hard to do that kind of ministry with a baby and we were living in the student house. That was our main, you know, our main position was we were responsible for that part of the community. And there were things that were challenging about that, that a lot of blessings Mm -hmm. too, and really got immersed in that hospitality sort of world and lifestyle and, and feel so humbled because there's so many people that are still doing it with so much more ease and kind of grace, but was we were really blessed to learn from the Schaefers and from the folks that work there still about what it looks like to be really hospitable. Yes. So, yes. yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your tips and the things that you learned while you were there and continued to learn as you came back to America and now live in Chicago and are in a, a parsonage or manse yeah. and, and as a pastor's wife with three young children. So I appreciate you taking your time out of your day. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It was just delightful. Recently, I did a three-part big hospitality series. 
I had a listener ask a follow-up question, and it had to do with how do you estimate the number of servers you need at a big event, and also how do you estimate the quantity of food you need. I answered those questions with the NSA crew. We worked a senior dinner last Saturday together, and I was able to grab everybody and do a quick question and answer time. So I have posted those answers as well as a new recipe for homemade yogurt over at Patreon. So go check out patreon.com. All you have to do is search come over for dinner and you'll find everything over there. Be sure to check out the website for recipes from this episode as well as all the past episodes. It's at comeoverfordinner.com. Until next time, bye for now. Bye.